This is episode 28 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with Men's Roundup 2007, Let the Story Guide You. This is session two with John McMurray. It's, it's actually, it's, it's kind of funny because uh, I'm not a funny guy. I, I'm not. Don's funny. Bob's obviously funny. I'm a Bible teacher. Sorry. But I can drink. <coughs> I was going to say I could drink water, but I'm going to choke on it. <laughs> I can drink water like Bob. No, I'm kidding. No, I appreciate that. that was good. Thanks. Is he, he's already gone, isn't he? All right. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> No, serious. I, I, I appreciate it. It was great. Um, I, I think Christians beg to be made fun of. Serious. I mean, look at the way we act in front of the world. We should be made fun of. You haven't watched TV lately. <clears throat> I mean, Christian TV. This is a little tall for me. I feel like I'm behind it. <laughs> Uh, actually, you know, I really don't even need this. That's okay. I don't even want it. Can I do that? Thanks. Okay, uh, what I'd like to do real quick is just uh, show you a couple things up on the screen. It's kind of light, kind of hard to see that. Scott picked these out. That's really dark. Lake O'Hara. Canadian Rockies. Uh, those were some leaves in my backyard. No. <laughs> Upper Multnomah Falls. That's the one above the one you look at from I-84. Ah, there's, he likes close-ups. Scott, you like the close-ups, man. Those are rocks on a beach. That's uh, the Sawtooth Mountains in Idaho. That's Pennsylvania. That's a golf course. That's par four. On, no, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's uh, Grindelwald, Switzerland. Mount Jefferson, my favorite place to hike in Oregon. That's Mount McKinley in Alaska. Some canyon, I can't remember the name of that one. Glencoe, Scotland. I got, I got to tell you a story about that one. Stop for a second, Scott. Just leave, yeah, just leave it up there. Um, <clears throat> I'd been in Scotland for about uh, 10 days, and it, I don't know if you've ever been there, but when you, Scotland, it, it rains more than it rains in Oregon, and uh, it, it does, and uh, I was there, and uh, the days are so long, the days are so long that, uh, you know, the sun comes up at 3 in the morning in June, and so if it starts off cloudy by the end of the day, like at midnight, it'll be clear. So at some point, you usually have the opportunity to take photographs. And, but this was the first clear day that I'd had in the, in the 10 days that I'd been there that, you know, absolutely was clear. And uh, I hiked up. You can actually see the road right down at the bottom of the photograph there. I hiked up from the road up to the spot, and I was going up the mountain because I wanted to take a picture of these mountains here. And, um, and I took the picture. I took this picture, and I sat down. 
And I, as I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm packing up my camera, I use what's called a view camera. It's a, it's a four by five. It's a big camera like this. It's the old kind where you kind of get under the cloth. You know, I, I don't have a flash or anything like that, but, but uh, it's really bulky. It's big. It's old-fashioned, but it's really good. <clears throat> and as I'm packing up the camera, I hear bagpipes. And what I hear is Amazing Grace coming up that valley. There was a guy playing Amazing Grace on bagpipes. And I sat there and I just went, wow, this is pretty cool. God's like serenading me as I look at what he made. Pretty neat. Anyway, go ahead. Show you a couple. That's New Zealand. Fjordland National Park, South Island. That's a rock in my backyard. That's Glacier Peak Wilderness in Washington. Middle Ridge. Punchbowl Falls. Hawaii. That's my favorite place to go because I take that picture and then I sip one of those drinks and a pineapple with a little umbrella. <laughs> and I get to stay in a hotel and I don't have to stay in a tent. That's Smith Rocks at 5 in the morning. That's the Canadian Rockies. Acadia National Park, Maine. Let's, that'll be the last one, Scott. That's Slovenia. It's a little country just east of Italy, south of Austria. I go there every year for a missions trip. It's where the Alps kind of peter out in Europe. And um, that's what I do for a living is I take pictures. So on one hand, I, uh, I teach the Bible at Multnomah Bible College. And on the other hand, I take pictures of nature all over the world. It's a pretty good job. I, I, I like it. And uh, I used to lead a Bible study, as Don said, and just to tell you the connection of why I'm even up here, is that uh, <clears throat> Don, and I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but um, Don started coming to this. And I didn't do anything. I'm still, okay. And... Uh, one afternoon, for some reason, he drove by the house and he had a little Toyota pickup truck. Remember that? And, uh, and he stopped by and I was doing something. I was mowing the lawn or something like that. I'm always mowing the lawn. Um, <laughs> you have to see my lawn, you know. It's a field of weeds. And this is the truth. I mow it as little as possible. Um, so when I say I'm always mowing the lawn, you have no context for that comment. But <clears throat> I'm, standing, I'm standing there, Don, and we, we talked for about two hours that day. And you were sitting in your truck. And um, I remember just thinking, you know, I like him. And uh, I, I, I found the connection with him. And um, I just thought, you know, I want to be involved in his life somehow. And... Uh, a couple weeks later, he raided my refrigerator, so we let him move in. And that's not too far from the truth. But we actually invited him to move in. We have a little apartment above our garage, my wife and I. And, and uh, we, I, too, have three kids. Um, uh, my oldest is a boy, and then I have two girls that are younger than that. Their names are Chris and Ellie and Cassie. 
middle name of my uh, first daughter is Grace, and the middle name of my second daughter is Faith, because I think those are the two greatest words in the English vocabulary, personally, that's my opinion. Like, let's make a deal? Yeah. Okay. Is it on? Is it on? Okay. Now I can really be like Bob. Now I can really be like Bob. Okay, anyway. Um, so uh, I was mowing the lawn, got to meet Don, and uh, he started to come over, and we've had a friendship ever since. I want to share a couple of things with you in, in relationship to what Don to talk about last night. And I, I'm, when I ask questions this morning, I, I just want you to, uh, they're more rhetorical, unless I say, okay, that's not, then I'm looking for an answer. And everybody can answer this except for Jeff Shackelford and Tom Turner, because they know the answers, they know who they are, at least I hope they know who they are. And um, so when I ask a question, just I want you to think about it. And here's my question. When Don talked last night about story, and that we need to begin to have, or at least pursue, a better story in our life. What's the story that you want to pursue? What's the story that you want to pursue? And I have, uh, I have an idea. And I, what I want to do is, if, if you could with me, like get in a helicopter, kind of get up a little bit higher and take a look at the big picture for a moment. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And uh, I want to throw out to you, as a dad and as a husband, and as a man, uh, what the big picture is for me, and what I think it, in my opinion, should be for all of us. So once you get there, I'm going to stop, and, and uh, I'd like to pray, if you guys would join me for a moment. Father, you're a great God. We just want to tell you that. You don't need to hear that from us, but we want to acknowledge it. We thank you for the book that we hold in our hands. And I pray, Lord, that in the moments as we look at what you have to say, that we would not force our thoughts on it, but we would allow you to speak clearly through it. I thank you for each of these men who are here. I thank you for the gift of laughter. I thank you for Bob and, and what he brought to us. I pray you'd help us to focus now on what you say and allow it to change our lives just a little bit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy 6 is what's called, uh, if you're Jewish, if you're a Hebrew, it's the Shema. It's the verse that basically all of Judaism builds their theology and religion on. It's chapter 6, verse 4, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. You've heard this before. This is not new. When Jesus was asked what the greatest command in Scripture was, he said this, he quoted this. He said, Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. And... Uh, when it comes to the big picture of the story that I'm trying to build, 
I'm trying to build in my life a love relationship with a God who loves me. And I'm trying to build in the life of my family a love relationship with a God who loves them. If you were to ask my three kids, I pray with them every night, every night that I'm home. Um, at least I attempt to. And I'm not saying this because I'm a great dad. I'm not a great dad. I'm flying by the seat of my pants, pretty much like you, if you're a dad. And, um, <clears throat> but I pray with them. And the thing that I pray for, and if you were to ask them, what does dad pray for? You know, and with kids, it's stuff like, you know, give them a good night's sleep, sweet dreams, a great day tomorrow, lots of fun, you know, things like that. And that's okay. That's great. But the thing that I pray for every night with them and have prayed for them since they were infants is that they would grow up to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because whatever I do as a dad, I really don't care if I can teach them to love God with their whole mind, soul, and strength. I don't care what they become. I don't care if they're a missionary or they're a lawyer. I don't care if they teach or if they're a janitor. I really don't care. I used to. I used to think that somehow my success as a father was reflected by what my kids became. You believe that? You need to get past that. But if my kids grow up to love God with all their heart, I've done the best I can as a dad. And so that's the, that's the story. Because the story of this book is how God loved us and wants to win us back because we walked away. You know, it started in a garden, and the whole thing ends when you get to Revelation in a garden. He brings it full circle and says, I'm, the whole point of redemption is to bring it back to what it was. And uh, it was a love relationship between a creature that he made called man and himself. And that's what he's bringing it back to. And so when Jesus was asked, well, what's the greatest command? He says, well, it's probably this. It's love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I want you to notice the next verse after that in Deuteronomy. The next verse says, and you should teach this to who? Your children. When you're lying down, when you're at the table, when you're walking Basically, you're to teach this to your children as you live life. So it's just in the living of life that we're supposed to teach our children how to love God. That's the story that we're trying to build in our lives. That's the story that God's trying to build in our lives. That's the story that we're trying to build in the lives of our kids, our wives, the people that we touch. So when Don talks about ambition, my ambition... Um, and I'll explain this in a moment, kind of goes like this. God, I want to know you, because I, if I know you, I grow to love you. And if I love you, then people will know that I follow you. Jesus made this very clear. John made this very clear in John 13. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples for the love that you have for one another. So I want to know you, because if I know you, I know I grow to love you. 
If I love you, people will know that I follow you, and they will see your glory in me. I will have a life of meaning. I will have a life of significance. I will have a life of purpose, direction, and this is what we want. So Paul said in Philippians 3, he said, my ambition, the thing that beats in my chest, the thing that consumes me, the thing that burns within me, is I want to know Christ. I want to know him. In fact, he said it like this, guys. I don't know if you remember it. In Philippians 3, verse 8, he says, and what is even more, I consider everything in my life, everything, my accomplishments, which he had just listed in the previous sentences. He says, I consider everything in my life garbage compared to knowing the surpassing greatness of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, he's not saying that his life is garbage. He's making a comparison. He said, but if I were to look at my life and all that I've done and all that I am, and I compare it to what it means to know Christ, and the way he says this is the surpassing greatness of knowing this person, then that looks like garbage. It's not garbage, but it looks like it compared to this. This is the thing that beats in Paul's chest. So he says, this one thing I do, I strive, I press forward to win the prize for which God has called me. Now, in the context, guys, because the Bible is always to be read in context, the context is knowing God. Because that's what he's doing. He's bringing us back into a relationship with himself. This is interesting for me because I think we need to rethink evangelism. Don referred to it last night. The way that we present Christ to the world is in bullet points. It's in four laws. And I'm not putting down that because God has used that. But think about it for a second. If I want to introduce people to someone that I love, like my wife, I don't sit there and go, there's four things you need to know about her. You don't do that. You go, I want you to meet my wife. And since she's not here, I want you to see the relationship that I have with her. And the only way I can show you that is, is to tell you. If she was here, I could show you, and you could meet her. But if God's really interested in a relationship, which he is, that's the point, then the way that we approach, the way that we present him to the world at large I think needs to be rethought. So that's kind of the big picture. So now my question is this. How do I do that? Well, I want you to turn to the book of John. John chapter 1, if you would. John chapter 1. And I'm going to try and give you the best shot I can at how I think this is done. Um, I wish we could spend, you know, the teacher in me wants to spend 13 weeks on this, but I can't. Um, John begins his narrative, and John, you know, under, you need to understand, and I hope you understand this, but if not, I just want to remind you that John has looked at what took place, and he looks back on, on, on this story. And he wants to tell you this story, and he has a certain intention. Everything that he says is intentional. And he has shaped the story to present Jesus to you a certain way. 
This is why God has four Gospels. You know, God's not a history buff. God's not just interested in you learning historical information. And if he was, if he was all about trying to, you know, come together and give you the real true story of Jesus, then he would have written one, and that would have been it. It would have been the definitive story, but he didn't do that. And the reason he didn't do that was because he wants you to see things from different perspectives, because there's things he wants you to see in the stories. And on the human element, John looks back and he says, there are certain things that are shaping the story, and there's a story that I want to tell you. And John clearly tells us this. He's very intentional. He actually begins his story with what we call a prologue. Now, a prologue, you guys, those of you who can remember back to the English literature days in school, a prologue is not an introduction of something. It's much more than an introduction. In the prologue, what you're given is the key elements of the story. And so it would be like John, if he were standing here, the actual John who wrote the narrative, if he were standing here, he would say, look, these glasses, my prologue is like these. This is the way that I want you to see the story that I'm about to tell. This is the perspective through which I want you to see what I say. So he sets you up. And this is how he begins. In the beginning. Now, immediately, what has he done? Anybody? He's thrown you back to Genesis 1.1. So John is going, okay, the story that I'm going to tell you, I want you to, I'm looking back on the entire landscape of biblical history. I'm go, in fact, of all of history. I'm looking back at Genesis 1-1, and that's where I want to begin. So I'm actually going to do that, because he's a good writer. He doesn't tell you he's going to do that. Good writers don't have to tell you what they're doing. You get it by the way they say it. And the writers of the Bible are good writers. They also have someone behind them, okay? that is moving them in what they write. And he begins with the same words of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now stop for a second, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but okay, John uses a metaphor here for God, and he uses the word, word. Now why did he pick that metaphor? He could have picked any metaphor he wanted. He could have said, in the beginning was the dish. In the beginning was the door. He uses that metaphor later in the narrative. In the beginning was the shepherd. He uses that metaphor. In the beginning was the bread. He uses that metaphor. I mean, why does he say, in the beginning was the word? Now, Here's, when you try to answer questions like this, you have to understand that John is intentional. That this is the beginning of what he wants to say, and he's choosing his words carefully in the way that he's writing his story. And the way that he's writing his story is to help you see the way in which he wants you to read the story. So he chooses this metaphor for a reason. Well, what's the reason? And how do I find out? Where do I get this answer? Well, you get the answer in the story. You get the answer in the text. You don't make it up. You don't go, well, I think he chose the word word because, you know, I mean, we do that, but that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to follow the train of thought of the writer. It's his story. He's telling it. So we're supposed to try and follow the way in which he's telling it. Well, he goes on, and I'll, I'll answer this in a little bit. I'll show you where John answers it in a little bit. He goes on, and after he says the word became flesh and 
He says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Verse 14. Now there's a lot of things he said in between there, but this is not a class on John and we're not going to, you know, kind of go verse by verse kind of thing. So I'm skipping. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now the word dwelt, some of you guys have heard this before, I'm sure, a lot of you have heard this. You've heard this word and it says, uh, it actually comes from a word that's used in the Old Testament. What's it mean? What's another way to say the word dwelt? Okay, tabernacled, literally pitched a tent. Okay, now John is, again, he's using a word and, a, and, and actually an image as you, the reader, or if you weren't reading it, because most people didn't read it, guys. When, when, the, when the scriptures were written, they didn't have printing presses, and they didn't have people in rooms copying it and handing it out on the streets of Jerusalem or wherever else you were. Basically, it was written, and it would, you know, copies, little pieces would be passed around, and you would listen to it. This isn't by accident that James says, don't just be a hearer, but a doer. Because that's what they're doing. They're listening. They're not reading. If they were reading, he would have said, don't just be a reader, but a doer. Okay? You and I have the incredible privilege at this point in history to be able to actually read it all the time. This is also another reason why the Old Testament continually says, meditate, meditate, meditate. Why? Because you've heard something and you've got to mull it over in your mind. You've got to keep thinking about it. Because you can't just go back and look at it and go, oh, by the way, I'd like to borrow that scroll. Now, these were sacred things. And not just anybody got their hands on them. So they're listening to this. And John says, when you hear, when you hear this word, it's going to bring up an immediate word picture for you. And it throws you back to Exodus 33. Actually, Exodus 33 through 40. And let me just tell you, you don't have to turn there, but what happens in Exodus 33 is Moses is incredibly discouraged with the people of Israel, and he's charged with leading them to the promised land. And he says, he says Lord, okay, um, you know, I'm about done. I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, and okay, terribly. But I'm about done. I need to see your glory. That's his request in, Mo in Exodus 33. Moses says, I need to see your glory. And again, this may be a story that you've heard before, but God says, okay, what I'll do um, is I'll hide you behind this rock because you can't see my glory. Because if you see my glory, you're going to die. And this isn't because I'm mean. It's just because you will die. <laughs> I mean, you can't stand in my presence. But what I'm going to show you when I pass by is I'm going to show you kind of the afterglow of my glory. Like, you know, when you see fireworks, you know, on the 4th of July, and they explode, and then after they've exploded, they kind of twinkle down. That's the afterglow of the firework. That's what Moses saw when he saw God's glory. And if you read the passage, again, you need to know, John is referring specifically to this passage when he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled, he pitched his tent among us. He's referring to this passage, what God showed Moses was his glory. And when he describes his glory, what he describes is this. He goes, I'm going to pass before you and I'm going to say my name, the Lord, Yahweh, full of compassion, showing mercy to thousands upon thousands, generation after generation. So a description of God's glory is his character. 
Do you understand what Moses is saying there? What I got to see was some kind of visible manifestation of the character of God, which is invisible. I got to see glory. And God's glory, as it's described in Exodus 33, is his character, who he is, what he's like. And so he goes on and talks about this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire that, you know, Joe Israelite could lean his head out of tent 147 and look down there and he sees this pillar of cloud and he goes, there's God's glory. So glory is a physical, visible representation of the invisible God. And listen to what John says. The word became flesh. And he pitched his tent, this, among us. And what did we see? We saw in this human being what God is like. We saw his glory. So he ends the prologue this way in verse 18. Nobody has ever seen God at any time. But the one and only Son, the one who's in the heart of the Father, the bosom of the Father, he has, now some of your translations say declare, some say explain. That's the word, explain. It's actually where we get our word exegesis, which really means not a whole lot to any of us, and it's okay, you don't need to. But the word is explain. Nobody's ever seen God. But we see Jesus in flesh, and we see his glory. And so John says, here's the point. Jesus explained him to us. And that's why I use the word, word. What do words do, gentlemen? Words explain ideas. They function to communicate ideas. Jesus is the Word because he explains God. Now, for John, as you read this story, everything that Jesus says, every every speech that John records, every emotion that Jesus shows, every miracle that he performs, every dialogue that he has, John says, I want you to understand. Remember, this is the prologue. This is the way you look at the story of John. Jesus is explaining God so that when he creates wine out of water, he's showing us what God is like. God wants to party with his people. Okay? Guys, think about it for a second. Would you invite your pastor to a kegger? No, you wouldn't. But they invited a rabbi to a wedding, and what did that rabbi do? When they ran out of wine, he made more. I, it's pretty tough to get around this, and I'm not trying to create controversy. But the point is, is that, you know, when you're meeting someone for the first time, the question that you're asking yourself is, does this person accept me? That's the first question you're asking yourself when you meet somebody for the first time. Because... Where this relationship goes from that initial meeting is based upon how comfortable you feel with them. Correct? 
And so the very first miracle that John tells us about is, listen, this is a person that you can feel comfortable with. He came to the wedding with us. He made wine when it was all gone. And you know what's really cool about that? In other words, it's not just that he did this creative thing on the spot, which was really amazing, but he didn't take credit for it. If you know the story there in John 2, the head of the, the party comes to the bridegroom and says, you know, most people save the best wine, they, they bring out the best wine at first. And then after everybody's had a little bit and their taste buds are a little bit fried and they're a little tipsy, then they bring out the bad stuff because no one will know. He said, but you, this, this act of generosity, you've brought out, you've saved the best wine until the end. This is, this is an act of generosity. And he praises the bridegroom for doing this. And Jesus and his guys are standing there. And, I mean, it, here's me if I'm standing there. I'm like elbowing Jesus. Hey, come on, tell him. He didn't do it. You did it. Come on, don't you want people to know who you are? Don't you want them to see this miracle? He doesn't say a word. You see, John's saying, I want you to see what God's like, that when he does things, he doesn't need to take credit for it like you and I need to. Hey, you know, I, I washed that floor for you guys, and I want to make sure everybody knows that I washed that floor. Because I want you to know that I'm a servant. Why do I want you to know that I'm a servant? Because it makes me feel better about myself. God doesn't have those issues. God can do a miracle, and he doesn't care if you know or not. He's happy just to do it. Listen to what John says after they watch this miracle. After this, we believed because we saw his glory. John 2, verse 11. So what John is doing throughout this entire story, that every miracle, every speech, every dialogue, everything you see about Jesus, he goes, I want you to look at this person. Because if you look at this person, the emotions that he has, the way that he treats people, the way that he heals people, the way that he says, everything about him, you see what God is like. Now, why would John want to do that? Turn to John 17. John 17. I have to apologize to you. I'm doing such a terrible job because I'm skipping all over this book. But I, I'm trying to get to a big picture so that we can answer this question. How do I tell the story of growing to love God in my life with my family, my friends, my neighbors, etc.? That's where we're going with this. But you need to understand why I'm going to say what I'm saying. John wants us to see his narrative, his story of Jesus that everything Jesus did explained God to us. And the reason why is because he heard this prayer in John 17. This is an unusual thing, you guys. I wish I, wish I could spend time with you and unpack this prayer. This is... Throughout the... Okay, let me back up. A narrator, when he tells a story, the narrator interjects these things that we call editorial comments. Okay, and John does this everywhere, all the time. I mean, it's just, he, it's something that he does constantly as he tells the story. So, for example, like when Jesus uh, throws the, the people who are, you know, selling stuff in, in the temple and all that, he throws them out, and they ask him what authority he has to do this in chapter 2. He says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And then John says, 
but he was speaking of the temple of his body. See, that's an editorial comment. John's telling you how you're to understand what Jesus said. He's giving you the interpretation right there in the text. He's telling you how, it un how you're supposed to understand this. So John has these editorial comments everywhere throughout the story. He's helping us understand what it is he's trying to do, how he wants us to see Jesus. And you get to John 17, and you have this prayer that, that John records that Jesus had. And it's unbelievably organized. And, you know, people just don't pray this way, not even Jesus. Jesus didn't pray like this. John took the prayer, and he edited it, and he condensed it, and he organized it, and he structured it, and arranged it, and then he presents it to you and I. And he doesn't make one editorial comment about it. John 17 has no comment. John says nothing at the beginning, nothing at the end. It just is gone. It's the longest prayer of Jesus that we have recorded in the Bible. And John, who his style as he writes is to comment about everything so that you understand what's going on, comes to this incredible thing and he doesn't say anything. Now you should be going, why? Why wouldn't he say something about this? Because see, this prayer is commented on all the way through the entire story. That's why he doesn't say anything at, at the prayer. Because the whole book of John is commenting on the prayer. It's the thing that shapes the way John is presenting Jesus. You go, how do you get this? Well, look at the beginning. The, Jesus opens the prayer, and he opens the prayer the way that John has the end of chapter 12 ending. The hour has come for the Son of Man, for the Son of God to be glorified. And he, he asks his Father to glorify him with the glory that he had from the beginning. And then he says this, and this is really weird. Jesus defines something for us, but he's actually talking to his dad. Guys, this sounds like a theology paper. It doesn't sound like a prayer. Do you see that? Jesus says this, and this is life eternal. You see that there, verse 4? 3 and 4? Am I right? Is that where it is? I'm not looking. This is from memory. 3, thank you. This is life eternal, that they know you and your son whom they've sent. Okay, guys, that is, okay, if, if you're going to look at my life and, and I'm going to say, okay, here's the foundation of what I am as a person and what I understand, that's it. I just said it. Guys, eternal life is not believing a creed. It's not believing four laws. It's not believing historical data about a name, man named Jesus, that he died or even rose. Eternal life, out of the mouth of John, who has shaped the story, and he listened to Jesus pray, eternal life is a relationship with the God who made you. Eternal life is to know this person. Okay? So what's John trying to do throughout this whole narrative? He's explaining him to you. Because the way you get to know somebody is as he's explained to you, as you meet him. And so in every story, every dialogue, every miracle, every speech, John's going, look at him. Look at him. I want you to meet this guy. I want you to see how cool this guy is, how he's the most amazing person I've ever, ever encountered. So much so that John, when he refers to himself in the gospel, refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. Now, for a long time, I thought, okay, what's up with that? Is, you know, okay, so John, he loves you and he doesn't love anybody else. Like, you're the, you're the special one. 
No, that's not what he's saying. Guys, he's looking back on his life and he says, you know, as I look back on my life, I can't even, I'm not even going to mention my name in this. The thing that overwhelms me as I look back 30 years ago about the life of this person, Jesus, is he loved me. I'm the guy he loved. And I can't get over it. So the guy who's writing this story is writing from the perspective of this guy I'm telling you about, this guy I want you to meet, this guy that explains God. He shows us what the invisible God is like in the visible realm. He shows us glory. This guy I want you to meet, he loved me. And that's where I get, John, if there's anything you can do with your life for your kids or for your wife, it's to show them that God loves them because he loves you. That's it. And again, I honestly can tell you, and I mean this, everything else is just bonus after that. So how do we do this? <clears throat> well, the answer, I think, is in chapter 13 of John. Chapter 13 is where John begins to talk about what we refer to as the upper room speech, the upper room discourse. You didn't know you were going to get a kind of little walkthrough of the theology of John, did you? But, sorry. Anyway, John 13 is where he begins this time. And this is, again, this is fascinating to me. John spends more time talking about what happened in the upper room than any other gospel guy, any, Luke, Matthew, Mark. And he never talks about what happened there. Guys, the main thing that happened in the upper room was that Jesus instituted the new covenant. You remember this by communion, right? And so in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you read about how Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it and eat it. And every time you eat it, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And this cup, this cup of wine, this represents my blood. And every time you pick it up and drink it, I want you to remember what I did for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. John, who spends more time about this conversation, never says a word about that. Because he doesn't care. It doesn't matter to him. It's not a part of his story. But this is what he says. This is how he begins this, the upper room discourse. He says, Jesus knowing that the time for him to leave this earth, the time for him to go, knowing that he was about to leave his best friends, the guys that he'd hung out with day in and day out, he loved them. And then John says, and he showed them, he showed us, the full extent of his love. So what John is saying is, what I'm about to tell you, the conversation that takes place, understand the context of the conversation. This is why Jesus spends so much time talking about, guys, don't be worried. When I tell you I'm leaving, I, you don't be worried. You, you can have peace. Don't let this bother you. And he keeps bringing this up over and over again because John has told you at the beginning of this whole upper room conversation that you're a fly on the wall and you're listening to this conversation. And he says, I want you to understand as you read it what Jesus was doing. You're on your deathbed and you crowd your best friends and your family around you and you're saying your final words to them before you leave this life. That's what Jesus is doing. This is it. 
These are the words he wants them to remember. And John looks at this and he says, you know what he was doing when he did this? He was showing us how much he loved us. In fact, he was showing us the full extent of his love. And then Jesus does this amazing thing of humility that just absolutely blows us out of the water. John says he showed us the full extent of his love and then he washes their feet. The master, the teacher, their creator, their God, who was the one who spoke the world into existence and gave life to the egg and the sperm and their mother, now gets down on his knees and performs an act of service and humility that blows them away. This is the job of a servant. This is the job of a household slave. And he washes their feet. And he actually says, I've given you an example. Do what I've done to each other. Not wash your feet. <clears throat> Serve each other. Okay, now let's put it together. If John is trying to tell us a story of how Jesus explains what God is like, and when he explains what God is like and we see this, we get to know him. And when we, when we get to know him, we see glory. This knowledge increases. Our relationship with, his, with him increases. And, and basically what ends up happening is I grow to love him because he loves me. See, John can't get over this. Look at 1 John. We love him because... Yeah, okay, you guys can quote it. This is the same guy. He can't get past this. And neither should he. And neither should you. So he gets to this point and says, well, here's how love was expressed to us at its fullest extent. In other words, this is the epitome of how Christ showed us that he loved us. He served us. Now, Paul will take this one step further in the book of Philippians when he says he served us to the point of death. He didn't just wash our feet. He died for us. Philippians 2, verse 5 and following, he says, you should have the attitude that Jesus had, who in, in his very being, he was God. But he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or hung onto or clung to at any cost. But he made himself nothing by becoming a man. And he took on the form of a servant. And he became obedient and humbled himself to death. See, you guys know this. But this is what John's trying to tell us. This is how you show the love of Christ, is that you serve. You serve people out of humility. Now, here's how, here's how insidious pride is, you guys, at least in me. So I go, yeah, okay, God, I'm, I'm going to serve. It doesn't matter what I own in this planet. It doesn't matter what kind of house I have or what car I drive or what clothes I wear and what I accomplish and blah, 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 blah. I'll get it all in heaven because I'm serving you now. I get the reward in heaven. And why do I want that reward in heaven? So that everybody else in heaven can see how big a house I live in. What is up with that? It's called pride. It's called arrogance. It's called sin. God, I want to be humble so that people will think I'm humble. So that people will perceive me as humble. So I'll, I'll act humble and I'll serve. This is not what Jesus did, gentlemen. 
John says Jesus served out of humility because he was completely confident in who he was, but he did it because he loved, and he was demonstrating his love for us. So if the story that I'm trying to have played out in my life is that I love God with all my heart, then it means I serve with all my life. Because that's what Jesus did. So I serve my kids. Let me tell you one of the ways that I try to serve my kids. And this is hard because my kids are the ones that I get angry at the easiest. Isn't that, isn't that pathetic? The people you love the most are the ones that you get angriest at the quickest. The ones that the littlest things that wouldn't bother you if anybody else in the world said them, but when your kids say them, they get under your skin, they get under your fingernails, it's like torture and you just want to lash out and go, nah, stop that. And so, I told you, I'm, I'm not a good dad. I'm doing the best I can. And I mean that seriously. I mean, this isn't true confession time or anything like that. I'm just trying to be honest with you. I do the best I can. And I sin. And uh, my children will... I'll get that in a second. Uh, my, my children uh, remind me of when I sin. And then I argue with them about that it's not. Because <laughs> I know the Bible better than they do. pathetic, isn't it? Oh, I'm a Christian man. What exactly does that mean? Um, anyway, I, I digress into a black hole. Uh, back to trying to help my kids learn to love God. I want to create what I call etched memories for my kids. Memories of their dad giving his life, not just for them, but for the kingdom of God. I grew up with a lot of Jewish guys where I lived in Philadelphia, and I went to all their bar mitzvahs. And so I got this idea that when my son turned 13, I wanted to do a bar mitzvah for my son. And, um, you know, I, I said, this is, this is a point in time where he's entering into his teenage years, and I want to create an etched memory for him. So I said, Chris, I said, you know, your 13th birthday, I said, I want you to invite whatever adults you want there and whatever friends you want there, but I'm going to limit your friends to six, and I'm going to limit the adults to about a dozen. And he said, okay, cool. So he did. We actually had some friends fly from the East Coast out for this, and um, his grandfather was there. I was there. Don was there. He was actually in Don's home. Tom was there, and uh, we played basketball, because that's the thing he loves to do, so all of our friends, you know, we all played, and he made me feel really old, because <laughs> I used to play in college and all that, and, and I coached for a long time, and, and I'm doing things, I'm telling my body to do things, and it won't do it, and he comes up to me after the game, and goes, Dad, you know, why are you so good, like, when we shoot around out on the out on the basketball court, out on the driveway, but when we play a game, you're like, you were really bad. 
Hey, thanks for the encouragement, son. Appreciate it. <laughs> you know, the whole old thing, you know, this morning when I wake up, I'm trying to stretch out my back so I can stand here. Hair grows in places that it left to go to other places. You know what I mean? Like, I never had hair on my back. Why is it growing there? My, my father, who's 87, has hair growing out of his ears. And I think all the hair that was on his head, it moves to different places on his body. But anyway, um, we play basketball, we go to Don's house, we have pizza salad. And then I sat down, Chris, on a chair in the middle of everybody, and I had each of the adults come up and tell him what they wish someone had told him when they turned 13. Or maybe something that someone did tell them that really helped them through their teenage years. So I had man after man, a community of men, gentlemen, come around my son and sorry. Don's laughing because I bawled like a baby that night. And Chris said, my son had never seen me cry before. And I couldn't, I'd get a sentence out and I'd, and I'd get choked up and I'd, I'd have to stop and I'd have to do another sentence. I had a community of men tell my son, we're there for you. Even if your dad dies, we're there for you. We want you to know that what we want wanted to know when we were 13, the best thing I could have ever known is to follow Christ. This is community, gentlemen. This is what I long for in my life and what I long for in my children's life. <clears throat> so I tried to create an etched memory from him, and I did because he looked at me, and I was on one knee in front of him crying like a baby, and he just stared at me. He just stared at me, and I'm, i got to tell you this. This is going to be hard, but it was, it was an etched memory for me. I'm looking at him, and I said, you know, I, I, I'm so sorry. I said, I apologize. I said, you've never seen your dad cry. You've never seen him get emotional, and I can hardly get this out, and I'm sorry that I'm embarrassing you in, you know, in front of your friends because you've got to know 13-year-old boys, it, you know, it's all about being cool. And he looked me straight in the eye, he said, he said, you're not embarrassing me. Thank you. I'm embarrassing myself now. <laughs> but I've had worse moments, believe me. <clears throat> when my daughter slips, no, forget it, I won't go there. <laughs> Create etched memories for your kids to tell, to tell them not just that you love them, but that God loves them. And that your love for God becomes evident to them. Secondly, someone said this to me a long time ago, and it stuck with me. <clears throat> the way that I can help build story into my kids' lives is the way I love their mother. 
because they watch this. They watch us fight. They watch us be sarcastic. They watch us belittle each other. They watch us do power plays with them. They see all this. But if I can love their mom the way the scripture tells me to love her, that's pretty, that's pretty big. How does the scripture tell me to love my wife? It tells me to love my wife the way Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. My life is not mine. My ambition is no longer centered around me. It's centered around God and the bride that he's given me. And the way that I can affect story in their lives is by loving her and serving her. So you know what I did? I asked my wife, what are the five worst jobs that you have around the house? The jobs that you hate. The jobs that you dislike. Cleaning the toilet. Interestingly, she said that wasn't it. That wasn't one of the five. But I said, I want you to tell me the five things that you hate the most. And gentlemen, I'm not saying this because I'm good. I'm just saying this because I feel like if God says this in Scripture, if I understand it, then I'm supposed to do it. So I said, okay, hon. I said, those five chores are no longer yours. They're mine. And I will serve you. I will do the thing that you hate to do. <sighs> eh, it sounds really good. It's not always really easy. In fact, it's hard at times because I still have an ego and I still have, you know, a football game to watch with my hand down my pants and the channel clicker in my left hand and a beer in the right. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Yo! So I love my wife, and I serve my wife. And I don't do it so that my kids will see it. I do it because I love my wife. There's a difference. And thirdly, <clears throat> the way that I can build story in their life about how God loves them and how they're to love God is I model it. I, you know... Here's my, here's my ambition, guys, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bear my soul to you. Okay, here it is. At my funeral, if my kids outlive me, and I certainly hope that they do if Jesus doesn't come back, when they remember their dad, I don't know what they're going to remember. I hope they don't remember the time that I, you know got on their case while we're driving down I-5 because of the way that they're talking too loud because I can't hear the music that I want to hear. Or them correcting me for calling the guy in front of me a moron for the way he drives. I don't, Bob, I don't use Old Testament words. <laughs> uh, Dad, 
You shouldn't call that guy a moron. I say Bugs Bunny does. That's where I get all my theology is Bugs. <laughs> but I hope that's not what they remember. I hope what they remember is simply this. My dad knew God. And he loved him with all of his heart. And I want to be like my dad. That's it. I don't care what else they remember, good or bad. But if they remember that, then they got the big picture. See, they got what it's all about. At least as I read my Bible, as I understand it, God says, I love you and I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to stay at this until I redeem you. And I'm going to do it so that it works forever. I'm going to bring you back to the garden. I'm going to come, as it were, face to face with you, take on flesh, and you're going to see my glory, and I'm going to win your love back. So, what kind of story do you want to impress upon your kids, to impress upon your wife, your neighbors? And do you do it for them, or do you do it for the one who's writing the story, ultimately? We say God has control, and yet I'm the one who brushes my teeth, takes a shower, and all those kind of things. And, you know, I kind of can do that without God. I don't really need him. Like, God, please help me learn how to brush my teeth, you know. So how does, how does that work, and how do I actually think about that? Well, I hope that maybe I've given you just some things to think about, to chew on, in terms of maybe what your story is to be about Now, what the story looks like, gentlemen, is different for every single one of us. And that's incredibly cool. Incredibly cool. But what it's about is about the God who gave us this book. The God who made the sunshine in these trees. The God who made you. And we forget that all the time, don't we? All the time we forget that. I mean, all it takes is someone to cut us off on I-5 and we forget it. Because then life becomes about that idiot who doesn't know how to drive, that got his license at Fred Myers, you know, and on and on it goes. And this is what life becomes about for us. I am acutely aware of how difficult it is to keep these kind of things in my mind in some kind of focused place. In fact, I think it's impossible. Because I don't think that's what God calls us to do. What I think God calls us to do is to learn from Scripture the story. And as the story becomes a part of us, you just start living it out. His story becomes your story. In other words, you, you take it on. And so I hope that this morning that maybe you've, maybe you've been challenged to think about that and to review when you think about your story, what kind of